The Metropolitan Planning Council names a new CEO. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news from the local housing market, including at properties going global after a deal with Christie's, West Loop condos on the market now reaching the $6 million price point, and more. Uh, But it is sort of noteworthy that we're calling in rat complaints at more than twice the number um, uh, that New York is when New York is three times our size. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, November 18th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, as I am every week, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis, how's it going today? I'm great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Let's start with uh, news about at properties and Christie's. This is the biggest news in at properties history, I think. Um, They were founded in 1999. They've been growing very fast. They've been on a outside Chicago growth binge for the last couple of years and on Tuesday announced a very large acquisition. They're picking up the Christie's International Real Estate brand. At Properties has 75 offices in the United States and Christie's has 900 offices. So it's a big acquisition. That's a huge acquisition. In fact, when I first saw that news, I thought it was the reverse because of just the size of Christie's that they were acquiring at properties, but it's the other way around. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting is, um, so Christie's Real Estate is a subsidiary, or was, I guess, a subsidiary of Christie's, the auction house. And in the press release, though I spoke to a principal of At Properties, I didn't speak to anybody at Christie's, but in the press release, um, somebody from Christie's said, this will allow us to focus on our art auction and luxury goods business. So it sounds as if Christie's has been wanting to offload its real estate wing uh, that it's had for 30 years. So that would would help explain it. But the other thing is that At Properties, as we reported in 2018, sold a stake to a private equity firm. And again, this week wouldn't say what the size of that stake was, but it was intended to fuel growth. So one certainly connects to the other. Um, They have been growing, they've been franchising, et cetera, since announcing that private equity investment. But this piece of growth certainly would be um, the biggest one that that has funded. Fascinating. So what kind of timeline are we looking at here for when we start seeing more app property branding around the, all the land? Around all the land. Well, so that's interesting. That, that was not spelled out in the original materials, but I spoke to Thad Wong, who, as I mentioned, is one of the principals and one of the people who founded at Properties back in 1999. And what he said is the primary thing here for At Properties is they have this technology package, a coaching package, marketing materials that they've developed for At Properties that they believe, and I've had outsiders, analysts of the industry tell me are really sort of 
the best in the industry. And what they want to do is get that out to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. As Thad Wong told me, they've been picking up franchises in smaller cities than Chicago. But he said, if we go to New York, we go to Beverly Hills, they love our technology. They don't know the At Properties brand, but they do know the Christie's brand. Outside Chicago, new affiliations with At Properties will be called Christie's. But in Chicago, they'll use the name they've been building on for 21 years at properties, and they will use the name Christie's for luxury properties. It'll be something like at properties Christie's for luxury properties. Both brands really have a lot of like brand recognition, name recognition rather. So that makes perfect sense to go that way. They do. You know, there's a lot of history in that at properties name going back. So again, they were founded in the late 1990s in the first big dot-com boom. And I remember really well sitting down in an office with Thad Wong. His co-founder is Michael Golden, but it happens that this interview way back then was with Thad Wong. And they were using this funny little squiggly at sign, right, which we were just starting to use because the Internet was just really building up um, steam at that time. And I said, so really? I mean, it seemed sort of trendy to me. It's like naming your company Bell Bottoms or something like that. And he said, well, you know, we're we're really about technology. That's how we're, this is 1999, how we're going to differentiate ourselves from those who are already in the business is that we're really going to be serious about technology. So at properties really sort of pushes us forward into the 21st century. Well, go forward 21 years, and it is their technology that is fueling all this growth. And the name, of course, I mean, using the at sign is is now sort of seems ubiquitous. But um, it's, it's kind of interesting that if you go back two decades, what he was talking to me about then, our technology is going to lead us forward, is what has just propelled them into, the, into becoming a worldwide brand. Yeah. I mean, that really speaks to their ability to focus on that initial mission to say, this is the kind of company we're going to be, and, and they've, they've stuck to that. All right. Let's shift to a River North condo building that is on its very own timeline. Tell me about this place. Uh, these are some condos at Erie and LaSalle on the site of the former Erie LaSalle auto body garage. It had been there from the 1930s until about 2016 when they sold to these developers. In September 2017, when they broke ground, the developer told me they'd be delivering by late 2018. It's now late 2021 and the condos have just come on the market. So I called to find out why. I didn't get a lot of explanation. One of the explanations was COVID, which, of course, would account for about a year or so of that delay. But the, again, these were supposed to deliver in 2018. So they're coming in later. They're also coming in shorter. The building is one floor shorter than it was going to be. And that's actually significant because the two concepts are related. That top floor, they told me in 2017, was going to be sort of a, a everybody's backyard on the roof, a common area for the whole building, community room, kitchen, big terraces with those doors that become invisible when you open them so that it would really feel like one big pavilion indoor and out. And then over time, they eliminated that floor. They apparently didn't get the zoning to put up 15 floors, but I couldn't confirm that. So they removed that big amenity and that one of the marketing people told me was is actually sort of fortuitous because people don't really want so much common space in the COVID era. It doesn't mean that the condos are bigger or that the terraces are bigger. It means that when you buy, you don't also have that common space. 
I mean, what do you make of that? Is this about zoning? Is this about budgeting? What do you, what do you have the sense that caused the delay? Uh, I would have to get more information. I, I didn't have enough. Um, I know, well, as a reporter, I can only report what I know, right? That's and right. what I know is they said they would deliver in 2018. And in 2021, they say they're delivering in 2022. Well, it's a very stylish building. You can tell there's a lot of nice detail in the in the units. Yeah, really nice condos priced from 1.2 to um, what 3.5 million dollars. Very nice. It's it's a beautiful building, but delayed by a fair amount of time. Here is a story now that I could not wait to talk with you about because I saw you talking about this on Twitter, looking for people to talk. And I thought, oh, Dennis, you're about to get clobbered on Twitter. I walk away from Twitter. I look just a couple of hours later and you're like, please stop everybody. I have plenty. And that is about rats in the city. I'll come back to your Twitter observation, which is bang on. But the rat study came from an organization called Rent Hop, which is a, a rental information service. They have been tallying calls to 311 lines about non-emergency municipal lines about rats going back about five years. Their data goes back to 2016. And in every one of those years, and in particular so far in 2021, Chicago leads by far. Just to be clear, this is only four cities. It's Chicago, New York, Boston, and Washington, because they all tabulate their 311 calls in the same way. And also the data person told me those are also very dense places that are likely to have common rat problems. So looking at just Chicago and New York, Chicago has been above New York every year this survey has happened. But in 2021, in the first 11 months of 2021, Chicago had over 60,000 calls about rats to its 311 line. New York, which is a lot bigger than Chicago, had about 25,000 calls about rats to 311. This could simply be a function, as some people said to me, of people in the Midwest, people in Chicago being more concerned about rats, people in New York thinking, uh, we got to live with rats. That's just part of living in New York. Uh, but it is sort of noteworthy that we're calling in rat complaints at more than twice the number that New York is when New York is three times our size. See, that is exactly where my brain went. Having lived in both New York and Chicago, I see rats all the time. I saw rats all the time in New York. It would have never occurred to me to call 311. I'm just like, there's, it's whatever. It's a, it, there are rats. We live in a city. It happens. So that was that's sort of interesting. A couple of the people I spoke to said, yeah, why would I, why would I call 311? Yeah. Um, either my landlord is dealing with the rats in our backyard, or I'm just used to it, or I've done something with poison or traps or whatever it would be. So that could also be a function that we're more likely, we've been more educated to call our 311 line than New York. Somebody would have to parse that out. Somebody would have to find out why people call in Chicago and they don't call in New York. But let's go to the Twitter thing. Yes, I did. I So I have this data and it's always nice to sort of hang personal anecdotes on the data. So I just said on Twitter, hey, have you seen a rat? Call me. And my phone lit on fire <laughs> on Twitter. And it's funny because, you know, I, I mean, I, I do that a lot when I'm doing stories. Because yeah. Would somebody like to talk about whatever it would be, having your mortgage application turned down, whatever it is. And usually I get, you know, four or five. This was literally in the dozens. I put out that announcement on Monday and we put the story out on Monday. But Tuesday morning when I woke up, my phone was loaded with text messages and notifications on Twitter. And some people 
you know, they didn't necessarily want to be in the story. They just wanted to tell me their whole long sorted rat saga. <laughs> I had all these rat stories in my email, on my phone, on Twitter. And that's after, as you point out, I had already said, okay, I have enough rat stories. Good. I, I was cracking up reading the replies on your tweet. I thought, because I saw the first tweet and I thought, oh man, he's going to get clobbered. And indeed you did. So I was going back reading all the replies and some were hysterical. There were like the rat defenders who were like, rats are great. We love them. And then there was the like, I just poison them myself, people. Here's what I do. I just kind of like shake the trash can before I lift the lid because I don't want anything jumping at me. Otherwise, rats, you do you. I'll do me. We're good. I, I acknowledge your right to be here, just like mine. It's fine. The other out. category of responses was people who thought that I was hoping to go see a rat. Like oh, I no. wanted to find some rats for my story. So they were like, they were, you should go to this vacation. Oh, there are always rats there. And I, I was responding to a lot of them. Just to be clear, I'm not looking for rats. I'm looking for people who want to talk about Talk them. about rats. I don't know. Trust but verify, Dennis. You should go see those rats <laughs> with your own eyes. <laughs> I would say the rats in my neighborhood are quite brazen because there are a lot of feral cats in the alley. And I have watched the rats and the cats have a standoff, like eye contact, because they're about the same size. They're just looking at each other like, oh yeah, they're just kind of like, you gonna move first or am I gonna move first? It's a, it's a turf war happening in my alley. That's kind of a wild episode of versus, cats versus rats. <laughs> That's in rats. Let's okay. say let's let's say some uh, give some advice about rats that I got yeah. from the city just okay. to, to do some reader service. You should, as you mentioned, close the lid of your garbage very carefully. If you have a vegetable garden, don't let the last produce of the year just lie there. Clean all that up. Clean up any yard litter and watch for those red and yellow signs in the alley that have warnings about uh, rat populations. Do you remember there was a controversy a few summers ago because the rat signs in the alley made them look very menacing and then a new sign came out and they looked very cute and sweet like a very pretty little botanical like the pretty drawings of flowers and everybody was mad for i don't know normalizing rats i don't know everybody was mad about something <laughs> about the rat. we have we have both in my alley and and was it broken down by neighborhood because i saw another i think it was block club talking about the ukrainian village west town area being kind of rat central some of the data was broken down. So again, this was from Renhop and they break it down into neighborhoods, but the numbers got so small that I sort of, I felt like the comparison Chicago to New York was, was best, but yes, they did. They find, I think it was Little Village, Ukrainian Village, a couple of West Town, there were more rats. And one thing we should point out is this is calls to 311. But this data lines right up with another rat survey that comes out every year. That's from Orkin. Orkin wants to come out and kill your rats. And they put out a study and they say that the every year, they say that the most treatments they do are in Chicago. So everybody who's looking at rat numbers is has their eye on Chicago more than New York. Interesting. Which I think, you know, is worthy of note. I still feel like we need some kind of survey of people in New York and Chicago would you call 311 over a rat? Would you call Orkin? Just, I need like a baseline of rat attitudes in order to properly go through this data. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that survey. I mean, my rule of, if you think someone ought to do something about this, that person should be you. I don't think it applies here. I'm not doing a rat survey. Also, can we play out of this into the next um, discussion we're gonna have 
the Michael Jackson song, Ben. I think that would be a nice little theme song to run <laughs> on our way out to the next segment. Oh, Ben. ben. <laughs> Just a song about a rat by I'm one say, of the I, musicians. I, I will let you sing that. I'm not going to sing it <laughs> for another time. <laughs> That'll be on the extended bonus bonus audio. <laughs> exactly. All right. Let's go to the West Loop and talk about condo building prices in that area. You know, another one that, I mean, speaking of watching at properties accelerate over the years, the West Loop is, is really pretty stunning. It's just about three years ago that I was writing, look how many million dollar condos there are sold in the West Loop, which was a big change from the 1970s, 80s, early 90s, when the West Loop was still considered skid row. Sure. It's only a few years ago. It's coming out of the, the housing bust of 2006 that the West Loop really starts to gain strength. And then it becomes one of the most popular areas to sell million dollar condos. Then I did something about $4 million. Con well, here we are today with a building where the prices are going to approach $6 million. There have been two sales at over $5 million in the West Loop. And this developer has uh, three units priced at nearly $6 million. There are other units in the building. Prices don't start at that level. But just the idea that people are building, and of course, this is an offering. It hasn't yet been sold. So we could be saying later, oh, nothing did ever sell for that price. I think that's unlikely just because the West Loop has become such a capital of Chicago. I mean, such a center with restaurants and jobs and great buildings and green space, Mary Bartlemy Park and everything else. Um, I think it's likely that we'll be reporting, hey, those $6 million condos sold. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking that it was since you and I have been doing this podcast and it was not long before the pandemic, I feel like, that we were having this conversation when a couple of Blackhawks players moved into the West Loop and we were kind of talking about astounding prices that they had paid for condos. That wasn't that long ago. That was just, I think, right before the pandemic, I feel like. And it just keeps rising. It's the the story of the West Loop is, is really pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, we we see high gentrification zones in other cities. They tend to be larger areas. This is the, the West Loop is relatively small by comparison to what's going on in places like Philadelphia, San Francisco, Washington. But it is certainly intensive. I mean, we're, we also tend to build higher than in a lot of those cities. And with the West Loop and Fulton Market, um, there's a book to be written in sort of before and after. If you, like me, walked around there in the 80s and thought, whoa. Uh, and then if you can flash forward to today, the, the change is phenomenal. Look, I think that book is, it's all, that is the Danny Ecker, Dennis Radkin project. The two of you have covered so much change in that neighborhood, both commercially for him and residentially for you. I'm just saying, claim it now, run with it, do it. All right, well, let's shift to a story that we talked about previously. We didn't have a lot of information about it, but that was uh, the Driehaus estate in Lake Geneva. We knew that there was a buyer question mark but we didn't know who it was we didn't have pictures of it we didn't know much about it other than there was a children's village and i was fascinated by that um but but you know a bit more about this house now tell me what you got well the primary thing we know is that it has a buyer it in in a very short time lined up a buyer which is uh significant news considering that it's a 39 million dollar 
property, it was really quick. It was the matter of a few weeks, which is really surprising. The, the house next door, as you might remember, has been on the market most of this year at about $15 million less. So what is it about Richard Driehaus's, the late Richard Driehaus's estate, that it sells so fast and other far less expensive homes take so much longer to sell? Well, one is probably that he, as we discussed, he rehabbed the living daylights out of this property. He really, really made it uh, to the nth degree in every room and also outside. So somebody who was in the market for something around 39 million swept in, put this under contract. We, of course, don't know yet know who that is. It's likely we'll never know because they'll probably buy uh, with some sort of land trust. And we don't yet know what price it will close at, but it, it seems likely that it would be close to the $39.25 million asking price. Because if you sell that fast, I mean, yeah. unless somebody just said, ah, okay, fine, we'll just give it to you. You're unlikely to have cut the price very far sure. um, because, you know, you, you get a quick offer and you, um, you know, you still have time to keep it on the market if that offer isn't any good. So my guess, and it's, it's only a guess, is that when this sells, we'll be seeing a number that's somewhere close to $39 million. There's just a lot of, a lot has been put into this house. As we knew, we knew he had put a lot into that renovation, but to see it is really special. To me, this is where you film the next version of The Great Gatsby. Oh, for sure. For sure. You're full of good ideas today. You got the book, you got the Gatsby remake. I love it's this. It's the coffee. <laughs> it's the coffee, right. Yeah, a lot of really interesting details. There's a picture that you have in this story of the study, that wood paneled room. Mm -hmm. I feel like my IQ would be at least 10 points higher if I had a room like that in my life. Well, and you'd also need to be about a foot shorter to enjoy this part, the children's garden. This is So this is something we didn't have a picture of when it first came on the market. But now that it's been on the market for a while and went under contract, they added photos, including this incredibly cute little children's garden, which you remember has, it has like a soda shop, a malt shop kind of place. It has a train station. Um, I think there might be a pretend barber shop. I don't remember. So cute. Just adorable. Yeah. So raise your IQ, but lower your height. And, right. and this house is mine. Oh, and come up with $40 million. The little, I mean, the children's area is so adorable. It's like this yeah. little English storybook, little, you know, village. It's adorable. Yeah, I think it is. I, it, it really is a fascinating property. And um, this may be our last look at it because it's yeah. highly likely that the buyer says, I don't want any pictures of my property still online and all this gets removed. So bask in it while you can. Oh, I'm basking. Don't you worry. I am basking. All right. All right. Let's move to another house with a known occupant at one point, And that is the former morning radio host, Eric Ferguson, has sold his Hinsdale home. Tell me about this one. Let's be clear. He sold a Hinsdale home. We don't know for sure that it was his. Um, over time, over the course of the past few years, a lot has happened, including most notoriously, the allegations of sexual misconduct that uh, wound up with Eric Ferguson leaving his radio job of, of 25 years. But a trust operated by him bought this house in 2019. In 2020, he and his wife sold a house they had owned since uh, 2012. It later turns out when all these allegations of sexual misconduct come around that in 2020, he and his wife also divorced. Now, this house has just sold, but what we don't know, because it was owned by a trust, I mean, the, the most common assumption is that was his house while they were breaking up, could have been hers. 
Don't know. He bought it in 2019 for 1.3 million and he sold it two years later, almost exactly two years later for 1.35 million, $500,000 more. It had been on the market since July. When it first came on the market, most of those allegations had not yet been made public. But of course, in recent, we, in recent months, I guess, allegations of his misconduct have been in the press. Uh, he left his job and then this house sold. So there were two homes in the trust. Right. In Hinsdale. Now there are zero. They both sold. Well, there was only a short period. There was only about six months when both of these homes were owned by Ferguson Trusts. So, I, I mean, I just want to be really careful. Yeah, we know course. that Eric Ferguson owned this house. We don't know that Eric Ferguson lived in it. It's possible his ex-wife lived in it. It's also possible that somebody else entirely lived in it. Sure. I just want to be very clear only to report what we know we know. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's fair to be to be accurate there. That we know it was owned by that trust. Um, all right, well, let's go to another house that this is under the before it hits the market category. Um, this is a place on uh, North Cleveland, so that's Lincoln Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is like in the Lincoln Parkiest part of Lincoln Park. It's Lincoln Parkiest. Yeah, it's midway between the zoo and Oz Park. Oh yeah, uh, that's Lincoln area. Park. On Cleveland, there are on this block there are some phenomenal homes um, with architectural pedigrees. This one doesn't have an architectural pedigree, but it's a great piece of architecture. It's a great real Chicago classic with that real stately facade. And that's really all that's left of its history. It was built in 1885. And before 2007, it had been uh, it, from 1885 to 2007, it went through several lives. It was a single family home. It was a 19 room boarding house. And then it was a three flat. So in 2007, a couple who are now selling it 14 years later bought it. And what they tell me is the facade st still really looked great. But because there had been so many changes inside, there was really nothing left inside. So they start a rehab um, instead of, you know, creating some sort of new interior with drywall and plaster and that sort of thing. What they thought is, well, let's show, let's honor these old bricks. And so instead, so that's what they did. They turned the inside into, uh, you know, it's like a loft in a warehouse Yeah. where when you turn it residential, that, that brick creates this nice old timey look. Somebody might come in and make a change, but what they have done since 2007 is, is develop it out as sort of a somewhat contemporary interior. But what they told me is their basic rule was don't screw it up. You know, if they had added all sorts of things to the walls or if they, you know, tried to make it look real, you know, specifically 2007 with cherry cabinets and that sort of thing, um, that might have screwed up the house. So what they tried to do is just let it be what it was. And then they added their contemporary furnishings and a very contemporary um, kitchen. They also added a three car garage that has an a absolutely wonderful uh, uh, deck on the top that is covered both by it has portions that are covered by a pergola and that are sunny. And they um, they did a really cool thing on the second floor. It's the space directly above this is was a, a rooftop terrace between, well, not between the two buildings, but next to, it was a rooftop terrace right next to the next building. They weren't really using the space. So what they did is they enclosed this terrace. So you get this, uh, in the study, you get this really won wonderful look where you're in a room, a brick surrounded room, looking out through sort of an arcade of openings to another space, an atrium they created. 
all through it, they just did, they did really wonderful um, finish. Uh, I shouldn't say finishes because there's not that much finish. They just, they used the space in really wonderful ways. It's a six bedroom house. The entire second floor is the, um, oh, the parents suite, the primary suite with that big sitting room I was describing and, and a great, a huge bedroom, 600 square feet on the first floor. The pictures you're seeing are a wide open floor plan because again, you know, they had knocked everything down. So instead of creating a bunch of rooms, they just sort of let it be the shell that it was. It's a pretty cool house. And, and I think I said, they're asking here, oh, this is the room I was, I was describing. This is where you have the sitting room and then you can see those white windows. Those are beyond a set of brick openings. That's an old terrace that they enclosed, the second floor they enclosed. So your room extends out to an atrium. There's glass above just really nicely designed and simple and stick into that rule to not screw it up. And they're asking $5.4 million for it. I mean, what's cool about this house to me is that I love that attitude of like, let's not mess it up. Let's leave it. Let's take away rather than add. I think that's very cool. Yeah. And it creates a very natural and casual kind of look that looks just kind of, as you said, very simple, very clean lines and just kind of like almost a relief to look at, right? Because all these natural colors, that brick color yeah. and the grays and the other natural fibers, it looks very, very cool. And honestly, if more people said, let's just not screw this up before projects, who knows how the world would be. It would be a very different place in all things, not just real estate. Um, but this is a really neat house. And you would not expect this to be the interior looking at the outside. No. And that's, that's what they said. They also, when they bought the house, they didn't know that was how the interior was going to end yeah. up. And so when you when you walk by on Cleveland, you think, oh, stately old 1880s house. It probably has, you know, woodwork inside and stained glass and plaster medallions on the ceiling. But no, it's actually this very sort of open loft like space, um, which is it, I, I think they did a really good job. And they also so it most of it is very simple. But in the bathrooms, um, she sort of indulged in color. There's this one. There's one that is several shades of blue. She kind of went nuts with the color in the um, the secondary bathrooms, not in the primary. Um, I think we're going to see some. It just, I, I think really a nice hand. And there's not a designer involved. The couple who are oh, both well. in real estate did this themselves. Well, good on them. I would have said this was definitely the work of a designer. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a really cool look. Very cool. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Uh, one of the things I've done, everybody's been looking at um, the Tribune and the St. Regis, former Vista Tower, yeah. these two very visible new additions to the condo market. And um, I've I've determined whether they're filling up. I'm looking at sales numbers there, sales numbers that haven't really been divulged. Also, do you suddenly have a guest star on the podcast? I feel like you're It's right here. <laughs> Usually he's completely quiet the whole time. I wondered, yeah, I wondered if you would hear all that. Usually he's very quiet. He must... He wants to go outside when we're done. Yeah. He's like, I'm done talking about real estate. Let's go outside and play in, in the leaves and do things. Oh, I think he just intruded on the frame. That's funny. He's usually completely sound asleep the whole time. I welcome dogs on all podcasts and all Zooms. And I love it when cats jump up in the camera. I love it. I love it. That's my favorite thing. 
coming up, a Fulton Market site that used to be the home of a flour mill is slated for apartment towers and office space as developer Sterling Bay aims to add nearly 1,000 units and more than 770,000 square feet of offices to the western edge of the former meatpacking district. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Is your student taking the SAT, ACT, or a high school admissions test this year? Academic Approach wants to help them get prepared. Academic Approach's time-tested tutoring programs ensure students grow their academic skills, improving their performance on standardized tests. The work together begins with a consultation with an Academic Approach director who will meet with you and your student to discuss their unique needs. Then Academic Approach creates an effective, fully customized study plan that targets their goals and matches them with a tutor who will be by their side, guiding them through instruction and practice throughout their tutoring journey. Get in touch today to learn how Academic Approach can help your student transform into a confident, successful test taker. Learn more at academicapproach.com slash daily gist. The Metropolitan Planning Council has named a new CEO. Darlene Oliver Hightower, who will replace the longtime leader Mary Sue Barrett, will be the organization's first black leader. A.D. Quigg is covering the story in detail and has more. The Metropolitan Planning Council, the longtime independent policy and planning organization, will have its first black CEO. Darlene Hightower was announced as the successor to Mary Sue Barrett, MPC's leader for a quarter century. Hightower is an attorney by training, most recently vice president of community health equity at Rush University Medical Center. She also chaired Rush's Racial Justice Action Committee and helped start Westside United, a community coalition dedicated to improving health outcomes on Chicago's West Side. She'll start at MPC in January. Real estate software startup Cohesion has raised $15 million from investors. The firm said the Series A round, co-led by Morgan Stanley Next Level Fund and Hyde Park Angels, brings its total amount raised to $24 million. Crane's Catherine Davis reports that Cohesion last raised money in 2020, when it landed a $6.5 million seed round that included investors like billionaire hedge fund manager Ken Griffin and investment firm GCM Grosvenor CEO Michael Sachs. Cohesion, which was launched in 2018, has built a patented software platform that allows commercial landlords to monitor and study various building functions like HVAC systems, elevators, and visitor management in order to better understand how tenants use the building. The company is a spin-off from Chicago global engineering design firm ESD and is led by CEO through Shiva Kumar, who was on the Crane's 40 Under 40 list in 2020. With a new round of financing, Cohesion says it will expand product features and enter new markets. Brookfield Asset Management is facing imminent default on a downtown office tower as it struggles to stay current on debt payments. The building at 175 West Jackson near the Willis Tower is home to financial firms and the Chicago office of the SEC. According to a report on the mortgage, it was 62% occupied as of September. And according to Real Capital Analytics, Brookfield paid $305 million for the building in April of 2018. It has over $258 million of debt on the property and two commercial mortgage-backed securities. Management of the loan was transferred this month to LNR Partners, the special servicer in charge of overseeing a workout. Office values in Chicago, like other major U.S. cities, are under pressure amid uncertainty surrounding when, how, and if more workers could return to in-person work. 
After demolishing a 19th century flour mill on the western side of the Fulton Market District, developer Sterling Bay has unveiled plans to redevelop the site with almost a thousand apartments and large blocks of office space. Crane's Danny Ecker reports that in one of the most ambitious projects to date in the former meatpacking district, the Chicago developer aims to build a pair of mixed-use buildings on the side of the former Archer Daniels Midland Mill at 1300 West Carroll, that according to a zoning application to be filed with the city council. On the eastern portion of the site along Elizabeth Street, the developer is aiming to get city approval for the 38-story building according to the application, which also notes plans for a second phase along the western portion of the parcel that's subject to future site plan approval, but slated to include a tower rising almost 100 feet taller than the first one. Sterling Bay is also committed to making 20% of the units, or about 194 apartments on the site, affordable under the city's recently adopted ordinance, beefing up affordable housing requirements at new apartment projects. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you like to get your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. You can also find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. I'm A.D. Quigg, host of Crane's new podcast, ADQ&A. On this week's show, I speak with Northwestern professor Jaime Dominguez about rising Latino power in light of new legislative maps. You can find it at chicagobusiness.com by clicking on podcasts. Latino issues are, are city issues, right? So wanting a better education for your child is not a Latino issue. It's a, it's a city issue. I think every parent wants that, right? Having more representation in the workforce, I think is great for the city. And so if the growth of your city, there's a population growth of a particular group that eventually is going to become the majority, right? Then I think it's important that that group gets integrated.